0: Hey nerds, welcome into another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. I'm Chris, alongside my fearless co-host Dave, bringing you the byword once again on all things nerdy. This week we're featuring an interview that Dave had with Fearless Fred Kennedy, who is a Canadian radio broadcaster by day and an indie comic writer by night. He recently wrote, recorded, and produced a Star Wars fan audio drama titled Mud Mud 79. But first, we have breaking news of a legendary variety. Dave, what is going on?
1: So the Legend of Zelda series is one of my all-time favorite gaming series, period. I've played each mainline and spin-off game in the series. Zero regrets, by the way. Even the weaker entries in the series are still enjoyable. This year is actually the 35th anniversary of the release of the very first Legend of Zelda game, back on the Nintendo Entertainment System. And I've been eagerly awaiting for Nintendo to announce something to commemorate this event. In a Nintendo Direct recently, uh, they announced that 2011's Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword would be getting an HD re-release on the Switch. The game will be out on July 16th, and it'll cost $60. And to that I say, yay? I mean, don't get me wrong, Skyward Sword is fine. Back in 2011, it was hampered with pretty annoying motion controls on the Wii, the Switch version will still retain those. You will be able to use the Joy-Cons instead, but there will also be a button-only option, which I really think is great. But charging $60 for a 10-year-old game that is getting only the most minor of facelifts, I don't think yes. Sorry, Nintendo. Also, they haven't announced anything else yet. I have to hope there's more to celebrate this venerable gaming series. There are rumors now that Nintendo plans to repackage its Wii U-exclusive HD remasters of Wind Waker and Twilight Princess into a two-pack for the Switch. But you know what? Even that is not enough. A proper celebration needs to be bigger and better. Even Mario's anniversary last year featured N64 and GameCube classics bundled with the Wii classics three games for $60, a much better value. Here's what I really want, though. Recently, 3DS game Metopia was ported to the Switch, and that opens up some interesting possibilities. You know what else the 3DS had? Quite gorgeous remakes of Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask, two of my all-time favorite N64 games. Heck, Ocarina of Time still regularly tops lists of the best video game of all time. And and I can't blame people because it is a very good game, and to this fan at least, still holds up. So here's what I'd really like to see. Bring me a four-pack Nintendo. The remakes of Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask from the 3DS, and the HD remakes of Wind Waker and Twilight Princess, all together in one package for the Switch for $60. I'll buy it for sure that's a value. Let's celebrate Zelda and Link in style instead of simply re-releasing a game from 10 years ago with slightly tweaked graphics for a full retail price of $60. Chris, what do you think?
0: Yeah, that seems a little bit disingenuous uh for a game that you've played before and and for a full price of $60. Um remastering older games is is uh, you know, really really interesting to me. Um, you know, fans know that uh I'm a huge consumer of Assassin's Creed content and so when I bought the deluxe edition of uh Assassin's Creed Odyssey for like 10 extra dollars you know you got the Assassin's Creed 3 remastered which was about 8 to 10 years old at the same, at the time um so I think that it, and it may have been like 30 or 40 on its own, but packaging that it was a much better value. Um, it, it just seems like they are taking the exclusive, uh, exclusivity of, you know, being the only place that has only system that has Zelda content, and and really mining that um, that factor, and, and and really taking advantage of that. Um, it, it really is interesting to see all these remasters of old games. And I've got my fingers crossed that hopefully the X-Men Legends, X-Men Legends 2, and and the Marvel Ultimate Alliance games get remastered. Because those are some of my favorites of all time.
1: See, I agree with that. I really like the whole remastering process. Um, if it is a significant, you know significant enough remaster. I mean, you know, when you're moving a game from 10 years ago up into HD, I mean, it certainly improves the visuals a little bit, but unless you're really going through and and overhauling something in the game, then I don't see why it needs a full retail price yet again, especially when it's so recent. Um, There are, you know, remakes, uh, however, uh, that would deserve, uh, you know, a bigger price point. But even if you look at like remakes of the of recent years, I know they did uh, the Spyro uh, trilogy remake. There was three games right there for a full retail price, and those were not, you know, just minor HD upscaling. I mean, this these were from the ground up um, rebuilding these games from scratch, and they looked amazing and played great. And even there, you were basically playing uh, paying twenty dollars per per game. So. Yeah, Nintendo, That that's just not cool, guys. Uh, I love Zelda, though, and I would really like some good content. So I'm hoping that there's more coming than just Skyward Sword. Now, Chris, you're taking us back into the streaming wars. What have you got for us?
0: So another production company is,
1: is anteing
0: up their arsenal. Uh, in the ongoing streaming wars, CBS Viacom is transitioning uh, the streaming service CBS All Access into Paramount Plus uh, on March the 4th, coming up pretty soon here, which will include a massive amount of additional content. Uh, yesterday, February the 24th, uh, they, re- they revealed a-, a whole lot of content. Programming is going to be coming from all branches of the CBS Viacom tree, including CBS nickelodeon bet mtv and of course paramount pictures in addition to original programming uh, like star trek discovery lower decks and picard a slew of new titles were revealed yesterday these include a new fraser revival with kelsey grammar returning a series centered around paramount film classics like the italian job fatal attraction and flash dance as well as several children's programs for nickelodeon like a live door of the explorer series um one nerdworthy reveal is that Nick has created Avatar Studios, which will create a series of interconnected series and films um set in the same universe as Avatar the Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. Paramount is also uh shaking up their theatrical release schedule, perhaps taking a cue and or a lesson from Warner Brothers. While they will not be going as far as Warner did with same-day releases, they are shortening the theatrical window on most films with the titles moving from to the streaming service uh, 30 to 45 days after their theatrical release. Um, pricing for this service is set at $9.99 a month, um, and that is ad-free, and there will be an ad-included version for four ninety-nine coming in June. Dave, are you a big Avatar guy?
1: i tell you what I am. I'm a big guy who likes to protect his, protect his wallet, really. And I'm just going to tell you, I, I like, you know, Star Trek content in particular, and I've been enjoying Discovery, and I still have not had a chance to watch Picard. But, you know, am I the only one who thinks we're about to hit, like, streaming saturation, maybe? I think this is starting to go almost too far. There's too many services piling on each other, creating the same problem we had with a cable subscription. You need to pay a crap ton uh of money for a crap ton of different stuff. And really what you want to watch is maybe a handful of, of movies or television shows on each service. You know, right now you've got Netflix, you got Hulu, you got Disney Plus, HBO Max, Peacock, and now Paramount Plus is coming into the mix, and that's just to name some of the main players. That adds up. One of the nice things about the notion of court cutting was always that you, you know, you get a couple of stream- streaming services and you save significant amounts of money. But really what's happening right now is whereas you had Netflix for a while as sort of a central hub of content, it's kind of been fractured and scattered about all these different services. And the shrinking theatrical window is interesting for sure. I'm concerned how that's gonna, you know, affect Movie theaters, especially given, you know, the COVID situation, once they start opening back up, if they're going to struggle getting butts back in the seats. But again, I I just I don't want to or need to pay for a monthly subscription service to get access to all of Paramount's theatrical releases when I watch maybe two or three of them per year tops. You know, I'd rather spend a buck 50 at Redbox to watch the movie and move on with life. So 30 days for regular releases, and I think it said something like 45 days for tentpole releases according to variety. Sure, whatever. It's it's interesting for sure, but you know, it is it is it financially feasible without the all the without um with all these streaming services out there? I'm not so sure. I mean, right now I'm subscribed to many streaming services. I don't think I'm adding another one. Frankly, I feel like I need to trim some of what I have. There's a lot of content on these services, but very little that I actually watch. So you know what? He, I'm just gonna say it, I think the streaming bubble is gonna pop and come crashing down here soon if each individual content creator keeps wanting to start their own streaming service.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And it's reached a point where um, you know, in our household, we've had to to you know kind of hunker down and really look at because when you add one one subscription service, on top of another, it really starts to pile up and and you're right back where you started from when you cut the cord initially. Um, Now we were fortunate enough when we upgraded our cell phones with AT&T to have HBO max included. So that saved us $15 a month. Um, And another, another big plus for me, and and this just makes me really want to dive into like a streaming wars episode. And I think that should probably be uh, an episode that we, we talk about very, very soon is, is disney plus in that bundle for 12.99 um i'm not a huge fan of the content on espn plus i think i would like to have a lot more live sports but i I, you can only do so much with with uh you know uh, contracts and deals and everything with these sports leagues but um just the fact that you have hulu and disney plus you know, for twelve ninety nine a month, and then if you can find anything on ESPN Plus, you know uh, that's pretty good. Um, you know, I I kind of drew the a line in the sand when The Office uh, left Netflix and and it went exclusively to Peacock. I know it's only four ninety nine, but you know those things add up, and so I was able to be you know as as someone. In our entire household, we constantly watch The Office. It is the chicken soup for our soul. It's the thing that we turn on after a long day at work or, you know, the kids being stressful. I watch it. My wife watches it. My teenage children watch it. Everybody watches The Office on three or four different screens. We'll have different episodes streaming. And I was able to find it on Vudu for $30 in HD for the entire series. So a $130 payment saves me $4.99 a month for, you know, having to watch it there and then a bunch of other content that I don't really care about. Um, so that was the first line that I really had to draw. Um, and, and it looks like this might be another, I, I'm leaning a little bit towards, towards anteing up. I'm a big survivor fan. So I enjoyed that. Um, I've kind of gone on and off with the CBSL access and I might pony up again because I I really enjoyed watching all the old episodes of Survivor. All 40 seasons were on there. Um, And I'm a huge fan of Discovery. Lower Decks is probably one of my favorite entries of Trek altogether just because it's so fun. But it it, it adds up, man. And, And it's really, really, really tough.
1: And I really think the longer this continues like this, I I think the more ownership is going to become attractive again, rather than continuously paying for a subscription service. If there's a particular TV show, particularly an older one that you really enjoy, like you pointed out with The Office, it's oftentimes easy just to purchase it through a service like um, Amazon uh, Video or uh, Voodoo, or even buy it on physical media and and then you have access to it in perpetuity. And I think for for some people, that's going to become more attractive again, the more this streaming landscape sort of uh, splinters, and it beca- becomes more and more difficult, and you have to have more and more services just to see a handful of things you like. So yeah, I think they need to be careful there.
0: I, I It's really fascinating. And this is this may potentially be the, the thing about streaming wars that I find most fascinating is how quickly technology shifts within a five to ten year period. I remember very vividly how quickly Blockbuster just and, and other video rental stores just went belly up with the uh, with the red box you know innovation. and now, you know, just a few years ago, you would, you would go Friday night, try to return a red box or pick up a new red box for the weekend. And there'd be five or six people and you'd have to sit there for a while. But now like looking at the red box and it's like a ghost town with these, with these streaming services and, and an, another really interesting observation, and maybe this is just me personally, and I'm just out on a lot of Netflix content, but netflix had like a 10 year start on all these streaming services and i i really struggled to find anything to netflix that i am really just i gotta watch um so i go a lot to to hbo max um i go a lot to to amazon prime um and and hulu but When it comes to Netflix, I really think that they fumbled this having such a huge head start. So again, this is something that I really would love to dive into for a full episode.
1: I do feel bad for Netflix, though, in a way, because what you're seeing with stuff like Disney Plus and HBO Max and Paramount Plus is that these are content creators going into the streaming business. But Netflix always was just a streamer. They had to become a content creator as all these different content creators that they had you know, contracts with, uh, when the contracts, you know, expired, sort of just pulling their stuff off of Netflix. So their whole business model was we're a delivery system. And all these content creators now basically said, we're going to go ahead and we're going to cut out the middleman and, and we're going to deliver it directly to the consumer. And now Netflix has this huge paradigm shift that they have to figure out. And they're starting to, you know, create more original content themselves. But that was not their business plan initially. And I'm sure that that is a huge shift to go from basically a content delivery system to, no, we have to create our own content. So I kind of feel bad for them, actually.
0: Yeah. And I will give credit where credit is due. They've pivoted quite nicely. I say they fumbled the bag and everything. And they, and they have created a lot of original series, a lot of original films. It seems like movies are like their big shift now. They're getting Oscar nominations and you know, gold gloves and everything, but maybe that's just not catered to me, you know, like, um, you know, my, my teenage daughter loves all those to all the boys, whoever, whatever did whatever, but um, you know, maybe it's just not like a 32 year old male demographic that they're, they're shooting. For.
1: Yeah. Now that's, that's possible.
0: All right. That wraps up our nerd news segment. Stick around after this, our first break for an exclusive sit down interview between Dave and fearless Fred Kennedy. Stick around.
1: All right, nerds, we're back. In today's ByWord Big Talk, we're sitting down with fearless Fred Kennedy. By day, he's a radio broadcaster. By night, a comic book writer. And later at night, he creates audio dramas such as the Star Wars fan audio drama Mud 79. Fred, thank you for joining us today.
2: Absolutely. No problem, man.
1: All right, Fred, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Tell our uh, listeners a little bit about yourself
2: who are you? Uh, My name is Fred, Fred Kennedy. Um, On the radio, I go by Fearless Fred. I've been in broadcasting for 22 years now. Um, And I've also been writing comics, like indie comics, small press stuff for around 12 years. Um, And for the past three years, I've been doing a podcast. But then when the pandemic happened, I found myself kind of lacking subjects I really wanted to talk about a lot. And uh, I just started working on this audio drama that's been kicking around in the back of my head for like a few years now uh, called Mud 79.
1: Now, you've written several comic book stories, uh, including contributing to anthologies like Two Patriot Presents and working on your own sci-fi quarterly, The Fourth Planet. What was that like?
2: Yeah, The Fourth Planet was like, um, that that was one of the, my favorite things that I'd ever worked on. Like I, when I started in comics, I did this one uh, indie book called Teuton, which is all about the Northern crusades in Lithuania um, and involved a lot of Lithuanian mythology. And I worked on that with Adam Gorham uh, from who's done a lot of work with Marvel. Uh, he's working on the Hulk right now with Marvel. Uh, and he's done a bunch of books with image and stuff like that too. And that's when we started out. And that was the book that we cut our teeth on. And then, um, I was looking for something to do after that was wrapped up because adam had already had opportunities to go work with image because he's a he's a monster talent like adam Gorham's amazing um and so then i was looking for something else to work on and i had this idea kicking around in my head about um it sort of started as like a spin-off of battlestar galactica actually and it was at the end of that series, like they had come to Earth and yada, yada, yada. We don't need to get into the finale of Battlestar Galactica. Um, but the, I wanted to have a story where uh, my own idea of what would have happened. And so and that was the starting point. And, of course, along the way, it changed. So the premise of the fourth planet was humanity had been totally conquered. It was a slave race. And this ship full of human slaves st- like commandeered their vessel and escaped. And they crash on this alien world with three warring species on there, three intelligent species that are all at war. Um, and the most advanced of those species has just developed the use of gunpowder. Um, and so these humans, though, incredibly technologically advanced, are woefully outnumbered. And they're, they're put in this position where they're almost forced to become what they're running away from just to survive. Uh, and I really like that philosophical question about like, how far do you compromise your own morality? You know, if it means security, like, do you become what you hate? If it means survival. Um, and there was a few really cool sources about that I used and drew on for that story. Um, when I was growing up, I, I didn't want to be a broadcaster. I wanted to be a, a paleo cultural anthropologist and study the origins of human culture. And part of the courses that I took before getting into that, um, were about the evolution of the human species and how at one point in time there were three dominant hominid species uh, not hominids australopithecines there were three dominant australopithecines on earth Um, one was really tall and agile Um, one was just big and bulky and one was just a middle ground guy like, like a jack of all trades wasn't really big wasn't really tall and humanity, like evolved as far as we know, from this middle ground, this jack of all of all trades type species. And I liked the idea of a planet where there wasn't just one dominant species, like there is on Earth right now. There was there was three, and then when you throw in the humans with their laser guns and spaceships and all this stuff, it really throws things for a loop. And the artist on that series, Miko uh is this Polish guy, and he just hit it out of the park because we were both really big fans of this cartoon i grew up watching before i moved to canada called uh ulysses 31 uh it's like this french cartoon because i grew up in belgium and i love that cartoon so much and so i really drew on it heavily for that series <laughs> and and miko was a big fan of it too and i think that series is golden and and unfortunately there were some issues uh, with the publisher that ha- made us have to stop working on that book, but I, I've always really had a soft spot for for the Fourth Planet. It's something that I would love to revisit one day if I ever get an opportunity to. But rights and comics, yeah, it's always a it was, it was a gong show.
1: Yeah, I actually had sort of a uh, middlingly successful uh, attempt back in the mid uh, to late 2000s trying to break into the comic book industry. It didn't end up in, in a whole lot of success for me. It was a great experience in the long run, but I know what you mean.
2: It's, it can be hard, um, but uh, you make a lot of good friends. and, and I still talk to Miko all the time, and we've, we've, we've toyed with this idea of doing a, a comic about uh, the siege of Vienna in 1683, which I think is a really fascinating piece from a historical standpoint. And what's frustrating about a story like that right now is... Um, people kind of grasp onto the sensationalized elements of it and they paint it with a modern lens and they don't understand what was going on in that story. And it frustrates me because it gets painted as in this like Christianity versus Islam storyline. And if you've read what was happening, that's not what it was at all. It's really the Ottomans and the Habsburgs and everyone else kind of choosing a side. That's what the story is about. And it goes back to a beef over who gets to call themselves the Roman Empire more than anything else. And it's, it's, we wanted to tell like a full wide scale story about it, but we haven't, that's really a lot of work. So we haven't really gotten down to working on that yet, but that's our one day when we have time, that's what we'll do story, you know?
1: Yeah, totally. So what to you is the appeal of writing comic books in particular compared to other mediums?
2: Um, when I moved to Canada, um, I didn't have a lot of friends. Like I moved from Belgium, like in the A N O province to, uh, to Edmonton, Alberta. And Edmonton, Alberta is like on the Canadian prairie and it's very cold and it's very different than where I grew up. And I didn't have many friends and I used to go to the Seven Eleven, and, uh, I would, play street fighter Two, And they had a spinner rack of comics. And and I used to read all the comics that were right by there where I'd wait for my turn. And so a lot of like, uh, like the lexicon that people were using at the time, like the way people were speaking, the vernacular, I guess I was drawing from the comics. And so I, there's always just a comfort there. And I think that there's a lot of things that you can do in comics that, you can't do in any other medium. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read the book, one soul by Ray Fox, but he's telling like nine different stories at the same time. And and it's comics is a medium where you can tell many stories at the same time. And it's a really cool methodology of telling stories. And I, I just, I love I love writing comics, and I also love the collaborative nature of it because I can't draw. So invariably, like I'm going to tell a story, and then it's going to be like modeled even more by the artist who's drawing it. So there's like a, a team play there, you know. And you can sometimes when you're writing, you feel like you're in an echo chamber because you're writing something, and you're like, oh, that's so good, and then you don't get that it's terrible but when you're working with somebody else like an artist who's your friend and uh, that you get and you're on the same page they'll almost always be like I get what you're trying to do here but why don't we just tweak it a bit like that and you're like yes absolutely so i love that nature of comics i i, I do like working with other people so that's that's one of the things that i love most about writing comics
1: now you touched on this just a little bit you know with with your move um, from, from Belgium to Canada. And I, I totally, uh, I, I totally feel, you know, where you're coming from with that because I actually moved from Germany to the United States. So, um, I, I totally, you know, know that that's a big cultural shift, but I was sort of trying to get to like, you know, the the nerd origin story, basically what got you really going in comic books and nerd culture and that whole thing.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um well that that comic thing really started there like I had read comics and stuff before that like that's where the 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 nerd the comic book side came from but the real nerd factor comes from my dad um cuz I am like I was always Canadian we always spoke English in the in the house but growing up we grew up in Europe cuz my father is in the military and so my dad when he would go on Like trips for work, whenever he was home, one of the things we always did was watch Star Trek. So Star Trek, if I'm being honest, is the beginning of all my nerd love. And there were cartoons, like I previously mentioned, Ulysses 31, which for anyone who hasn't heard about it, it's like everyone goes on about Robotech, about how Robotech is so important. And I agree because Macross and Robotech are amazing. But I really feel like anyone who grew up in Europe in the 80s was given a treasure trove of incredible animation and European animation is very different than anime and North American animation but it draws from both those sources like there's so many European cartoons that you would think are rotoscoped where they're just taking like film frames and just painting over them but they're not they're just they're oh, the the frame rates are huge and uh it's got this like elegance there's an elegance to european animation and ulysses 31 and there was this other one called the city of gold which i haven't re-watched but i remember loving it <laughs> and it's like this hybrid of these like spanish conquistadors going to the new world and looking for these cities of gold and then they break up into different factions and they find these like super advanced underground cities with technology. It's it's wild. Like there were so many really cool cartoons that I grew up watching that whenever I talked to my friends that grew up here, they'd never seen them. And I also would watch like He-Man and stuff like that on the BBC and all those things. But like so there was like an element of fantasy with He-Man and but the, Ulysses 31 and Star Trek, I think if I'm really being honest, were the first big sci-fi loves and then of course when Star Star Wars was released on VHS I remember <laughs> I I remember watching Return of the Jedi for the first time with one of my cousins who was like 6 years older than me and just being blown away and I remember he was like that cousin that like would make you watch something that you didn't want. Because I didn't want to watch it. And I watched Return of the Jedi before I watched any of the other ones. And that scene when Luke walks, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. When when Luke Skywalker walks down the hallway in Jabba's palace and chokes at the Gomorian guards, I was like, I'm in. I don't even know what's happening right now, but this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I remember being so excited and then when Vader takes off his helmet, like all these things, like I, I feel like there was a love of sci-fi, but I love star Wars so much because it's science fantasy. It's a fantasy story. Like there's really no science to it. It's just techno babble, but this it's so cool. Like, and and once I saw star Wars, like that was it. And I don't think anything has ever touched star Wars at all i love all these other things but star wars is dude it's <laughs> star wars man it's so great i love <laughs> it so much
1: uh, i really want to keep pulling on that on the star wars string but there was a couple other questions i was going to ask you first i was very interested to see that uh you know you're you're doing um broadcasting for toronto's rock station q107 yeah and i was sort of interested in how you got involved in in broadcasting and radio
2: you know it's interesting when i when I moved to Canada, um, I loved listening to the radio because most of the radio stations that I listened to in Europe that we'd listened to when we were driving, um, they, there was a disconnect. There was not even a cultural disconnect because you are immersed in that culture when you're living there. But it's kind of a weird vibe. And and living in Germany, I don't know whereabouts in Germany you lived, but there's like there were loads of American bases in Germany when I was growing up. So And there's like there's this weird like interjection of cultures when you're living in a place like Europe because everybody, yeah, you get it. You totally get it. And so when I moved to Canada, like I was listening to the radio and it was like all of the radio stations were in English, which to me was a wild thing. So I could listen and, and it wasn't even that they were just in English. There was like, there was a country music radio station. There's no country music in Europe. I never listened to country when I was over there. I found it so fascinating. And so I was listening to this, and then there was like a classic rock station, and there was all these different types of music, and I was listening to all of them all the time. And then when I went to high school, there was a radio club, and I was so stoked to do... And all the radio club did was we broadcast music for... Uh, an hour before classes in the morning. That was the morning shift. And then there was the lunch shift where you broadcast music during the lunch hour. And then at any school events, we ran the audio equipment. Like we ran the audio for the school plays and all that stuff. And it wasn't even very complicated. It was like one microphone and you turn it, but it felt really big and I loved it. And And I know radio isn't what it was before, but I think it's still a big deal to a lot of people. I've got a friend who works for Sony Music and he said he goes it's never been less important than it was but it's still the most important thing is what he said um and i believe that's true to a certain extent um but i got into radio from high school like as soon as high school was done i wanted to go to broadcasting school and when i went to broadcasting school um it was awful i hated broadcasting school so much i hated it and so what i did was I took my college demo and I sent it to radio stations to try and get a job. And the very first job offer I got, I went to my radio teacher and I told him I had this job offer. And I said, what should I do? And he goes, you take it. He goes, there's nothing you're going to learn here that you're not going to learn working in the field. So I went and I got my first radio job and, and I bounced around. I worked on the East Coast. I worked in Northern Ontario, like up in this tiny little mill town. Um, I worked in Floydminster, which is like in the middle of nowhere on the prairies, in Edmonton, my hometown, which was the goal. And I'd kind of, I'd always had this like lofty goal of working in Toronto where I'm working now because it's like the epicenter of Canadian media. It's like, It's the third biggest city in North America and no fourth biggest. And so I had this dream of like being in Toronto one day. And then I'd kind of given up on it. And then when a job opportunity came, I, I immediately jumped on it. And what's interesting is, I was doing comics in Edmonton, but they were always like twelve-hour comic book challenge, twenty-four-hour comic book challenge. And then I was had just really started reaching out to artists to try and create like a full-length comic. And then. I've got this job to come to Edmonton to Toronto from Edmonton. And the guy who runs the comp book shop there, uh, that I always went to the happy Harbor, um, which was like, it's like, I forget what it's called. Wonderland or wonder Harbor or something like that now, because the guy who owned it, Jay Bardila, he, he sold it. Great guy. And I remember when I was leaving, he said, he goes, I don't know if you'd really want to go. Cause you're starting to really catch some fire with the comp book thing. But it was when I got to Toronto, I'd been on air for a few weeks and Adam Gorham had just finished his very, very first comic, And he's going to be mad at me for mentioning this because I don't think he wants anyone to ever know what it's called, but I'll tell you, vampire conspiracy, that's what it's called. And he was like, he was trying to like get publicity for it. He was hustling and he called me up straight up to ask if I would like, want to talk about his comic on air. Cause my profile photo on the station, I was wearing a Blue Lantern shirt because this was back when, remember when the Green Lantern Rebirth arc was huge? That's when I started at The Edge in Toronto. And he called me up and I was like, I will talk about it, but how about me and you work on a comic? And that's what kind of started everything. And that radio, I love working in the radio because it's you constantly having to write content. So you're always having to come up with fresh material every single day. And it's very creatively taxing, but it's the most fun I could possibly have. Like I, I shamelessly love it so much, (laughs) despite all of the flaws in the industry, despite all the jokes that people make about radio, people like, hey, hey, radio. Like, I don't care. I love it so much. I can't deny it. I just, I absolutely love it. (laughs) I really do. It's like somebody who likes chicken fingers and French fries. People can make fun of them. They're still going to love chicken fingers and French fries. That's me. All right. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I do have to ask where the fearless moniker and fearless Fred comes from.
2: Okay. So when I got my first gig in Winnipeg, um, Winnipeg is like a, smaller city on the prairies. But for me, I'd never worked in a market that big. I'd been in radio for like four years at that point. I've been fired from every job that I'd had. Um and the thing with small market radio is, is they don't want you to go in and, and be over the top. They want you to just come in and read the local community events and be straight ahead. That's what they want, generally speaking. And those are the places where I'd been working and I didn't have a very good demo tape. And I was I, I, but I needed to be at that station at power ninety seven was the name of the station in Winnipeg, and I wanted to be there because it was a smaller market, but so many huge names had been through the doors at that station. and it was really serendipitous because my dad, who was still in the military at that time was living in winnipeg and so i was living with my mom and my dad which was kind of humiliating because you know i said it on my own i'm gonna make it but then like four years later i've been fired from all these places now i'm living with my parents again and i went in every day for like three weeks with a new demo disc and a new resume and i went in like this is when you had to burn cds there was no way you weren't no one was emailing mp3s at this time And I went in every day with this new demo and a new resume and cover letter and all that. And every day I get like shot down at the front desk. Like the the guy, the program director would be like, ah, too busy. I can't talk to this guy. And then one day I went in and I kind of half resigned myself that if it does, I don't get to see the guy today, it's not going to happen. And I went in a bit later because I actually had a job interview earlier at a coffee shop. And when I went in, uh, there was a new person at the front desk and her name is diane forsberg and i swear to god i owe her my career because of what she did next she calls the guy on his office on his office phone his name is steve parsons he's the boss he's the program director and she calls him on the speakerphone, and she's like the guy is back he's back and he's like tell him i'm busy and she goes you're on speakerphone. he knows you're not busy you got to come up and talk to him now so he brought me in and he gave me an air check, which is where you listen to, like, someone's demo disc and whatnot. And it's sort of like getting, like, a portfolio review in comic books is the closest equivalent. So imagine if all you've ever done is short comics for your, like, your high school newspaper. And then you got to sit down with Jim Lee for a portfolio review. That's the feeling that I've got right now. Everything that we listened to, I was embarrassed to be listening to. <laughs> like I was embarrassed of what I had. But he 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 got like how hard I was willing to work because I'd humiliated myself for three weeks coming in every day. And he gave me a job on the overnights, and I wasn't even on air, I was just pushing the buttons on the overnights, playing pre-recorded breaks from somebody else. Um and who did like middays on the station. And the thing with that overnight gig was the morning show would come in in the mornings and in radio, the morning shift is like the top of the mountain. Like they're the, that's the biggest show on the station. And so when the morning show would come in, I would get to meet these guys. And, uh, one of the guys that was the morning guy actually worked with one of my bosses that had fired me on the East coast. And he, he really took a liking to me and his name was BJ Burke. And he called the guy and like asked him why I got fired. And, it, I didn't get fired because of a lack of creativity or talent. I got fired because I had a bad attitude. And I did. I had a terrible attitude. And I deserved to get fired. And if I ever met that guy, Bob McKechern is his name, the first thing I would do is apologize for being a terrible young broadcaster. And BJ and his co host, Hal, really liked me because of how desperate I was to do anything they wanted. So they started putting me on air as their stunt boy. And I would do anything that they got me to do. Didn't matter what it cost. Like I would do anything no matter how humiliating. And so it became a bit to see how far they could push me. And that's where the name fearless Fred came from was because I was willing to do anything they got me to do. Um, and the like they used to do this bit called. Uh, it was like it was like the crossinator. And so they would ask me questions and. The listeners uh, could, the higher the prize, the higher, there was like an electric dog collar on my neck, the higher, the, the bigger the prize, the higher the setting on the dog collar. And they would ask the listener a trivia question. And if they got it wrong, I got electrocuted. So like, these are the types of things that I did. And I know that sounds like people are like, oh my God, that's terrible. But it was some of the funnest times I ever had in the game. These are things I would never do to anybody, but this is what I was willing to do to succeed. So that's where fearless Fred came from. (laughs) Now, you know, that is, that's
1: one heck of a story.
2: (laughs) Like there's so many of these like cliche radio things that when I hear myself say them, they sound terrible and boorish and awful. But the thing was, is that I was getting paid like from my salary at the station, but also the amount of lessons that I was learning about how to carry yourself as a broadcasting professional, how to treat clients, how to treat people because they were always so good to everybody that they met. But when we were in the studio, it was very like competitive and gong showy, but it was the, it was some of the best times ever. Like I, it was, I got the name from there. So now you know,
1: So you also made the leap to podcasting and I found that extremely interesting as somebody coming, you know, from a traditional broadcasting radio uh, background to, you know, make the leap to to online and podcasting. Um how come and do you have a preference between the two?
2: They're so different. Um so the very first podcast I ever did was something called The Fredcast and it was just really a long format Interview show. And then I think the term that people tend to use now is like a chum cast. And I did this like almost a decade ago. Um, And you can find it online. It's just called the Fredcast. There's actually a show called the Fredcast, which is about bicycling, but mine was not that. And that was when I was doing TV at the time. I had a show called Fred at Night on Teletoon, which is Canada's answer to the Cartoon Network. And so I was doing the Fredcast then. And what it was, I started doing it um, to hone my interviewing skills. Um, and also cause the dream was always to do long format interviews. Like that's always what I wanted to do. Um, and so it was an opportunity for me to do these long format interviews where I could just sit down and talk to people and ask them questions about everything. And it was so fun. It was so fun. And I loved doing it. And then there were some, There, I, I, I had like, a, a an issue with, management at the radio station and a bunch of things happened and there was a bunch of shifts in management. And I got very huffy puffy and I got very mad about doing it anymore. And I just stopped. I stopped entirely. And then a few years later, um, the guy who was actually my director for Fred at Night on Teletoon was working um, with uh, I forget the Antica. He was working with Antica, and he asked if I wanted to do the same type of podcast show there. And so I started doing issue zero through Antica, which was once again more of like a chum cast, long format interview show, and it was fun. And that's where I met my current podcast producer, Dila. And she always told me, she always used to say, she goes, You're so good on your feet. She's like, You're so good on your feet but if you just sat down and scripted your show you would do a really really good podcast and i was hesitant to do that until the company that owns my radio station chorus started doing podcasts with the curious network and they asked if i if they could buy the rights to the to issue 0 and bring it on board there and i was like absolutely and so we started doing more of a scripted show and it was a lot of work but it was really fun and it was also a great way for me to like learn more things and our very first episode with that was we did a big breakdown about the mandalorian and this was right before the mandalorian debuted and it was all about how mandalorians came to be and and the very first appearance of boba fett which was actually in a thanksgiving day parade and uh, and how he was involved in the rollout of the toys for the Empire Strikes back, appearing in malls and stuff, and there were some really interesting facts that i that i'd learned and then I would like pose questions like how i don 't believe Conan is a barbarian; he always gets painted as a barbarian, but i don 't believe that that's a that 's an accurate term for who he is as a character. I think he 's a very, very smart, clever guy and I got into these, these really deep philosophical questions about like these pop culture characters and I love doing it. Um, And to say, which I prefer to do is it's, it's a difficult choice because they're so completely different. You know, I think that the scripted podcast is so dramatically different from radio where it's so much uh, improvisation and reacting on the fly and loosely scripting and, A good radio show, sometimes you can have the whole thing mapped out and prepped up and clocked, as they say, is the term. And then you get into the studio and one thing happens and all the prep that you did goes out the window because you've got something better and you just came up with it as you went and you just go from there. Whereas a podcast is you write it, you do it, and then you put it together. So I love them both for very different reasons.
1: So you talked a little bit already about uh, your love of Star Wars and how you first uh, saw Return of the Jedi on VHS tape. Um, so let's just kind of get into, into Mud 79 a little bit. What, what inspired the creation of that and, and why create a Star Wars audio drama?
2: So <laughs> that's a loaded question with a few prongs. Um, so the, very, the the idea started years ago um there's this painting by this italian painter and it's this watercolor painting of a scout trooper and if you've ever done a, lo- a search for scout trooper online uh you've you've seen this picture and it's like the scout trooper and he's like leaning up against the tree holding monoculars and it looks like it's raining and i love that picture so much i love it so much because you you've got a mask but with the bodies the, like the body language there's just this sense of sadness and desperation in the way this guy is leaned up against this tree and i i always felt that the weakness of star wars is the way that it's like the the empire is always like these inhuman things they're just caricatures rather than people and when i saw rogue one it was the first time where you start to see shades of gray. Um, And I saw that picture and then I started to create a story about it from this scout troopers perspective after the fall and the Battle of Endor and the empire is imploding and he's on this like backwater outpost and it's kind of like you hold the line. There's no resupply. We stay here until we win or we die. And that was with the beginning of the idea, but and it's always just something that I played around with. I I just have always felt like there's never really been a boots on the ground type story in Star Wars, and I think The Mandalorian very much is that story, which is why I think I love it so much. Um, But it was never anything that I was going to really actively work on. And then uh, when COVID hit, I had a few comic book projects that were that were moving to the contract stage. And then they all fell apart because when the diamond shutdown happened, so many people saw work implode. And I, that's not me complaining. Like people had it way worse than I did. Um, but I realized like I don't have the money to produce this comic book and then pay an artist and get it printed and get it solicited and ship it all these shops. Like, it just wasn't feasible for me to do so i needed something that i could do just me and i started working on mud 79 but i had had changed the idea to mud troopers cuz um i watched solo and i re i don't mind solo i think solo gets ripped on a lot and i don't i don't get it i think that the opening of solo is fantastic because once again it shows a lot of shades of gray, like Han Solo joined the empire to get away, to escape. And that's a really powerful thing. You've got a galaxy with trillions of lives in it. He's not the only one doing that, you know? And there's probably like, my father came from a very troubled background growing up. And when he joined the military and he always explained to me that like, he was he was a bad kid heading down a bad path. And when he joined the military, it gave him structure and it gave him it gave him a sense of accomplishment that he could be something, you know. And I think there's a lot of people out there that that benefit from that. And and I've I've always kind of half resented Star Wars for its treatment of the the Imperials. And that's what I love about Mandalorian so much is how it it really puts a human face on things like when that one trooper on the shuttle at the very finale of the, of the series, when he's like, do you know how many millions of people died when you guys blew up that death star? And it's like, those are people (laughs) like they're, it's mathematically impossible that they're all the worst. A lot of them are probably just like welders that needed a job and went up there to like pay some bills. My kid needs, my kid needs astro braces. I got to go take this job, you know? So that's what I kind of wanted to do in Mud seventy nine was to tell a story like that.
1: So if you had to like give an elevator pitch on Mud seventy nine, what is it? What is it about? How would you explain the series?
2: It is, it's like Platoon set in Star Wars is the simplest, most direct way of explaining it. Uh, and I find that there's a lot of parallels between Platoon and Mud seventy nine, and they weren't intentional, by the way. I hadn't rewatched Platoon in years, but the 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 reason those similarities are there is because the I watched that Ken Burns Vietnam documentary and which is fantastic because it's so objective and they just they they talk to everybody on every side and it, it, I encourage everyone to watch it. it it's so fascinating and the there's this one scene that really stuck with me and this one guy is explaining that he grew up and his dad fought in the Second World War. And all his closest friends fought in the Second World War. And it was a big bonding moment for them. And he's got cousins that fought in Korea. And they they talk about it. And it's, they wave the flag, you know, like, look what we did. And they did this, this sense of belonging and pride. And when the Vietnam War came along, it's like he saw his dad and his cousin. There's this sense that this is my time. This is for me. This is my generation's fight. This is what this was. What will bo- this is what's going to bond us. And when you apply that to Star Wars, the characters all grew up during the Clone Wars, and so they grew up watching Republic propaganda about how the Republic is so good and join the Republic. We need you. We need you. And then they change for like for most people, it was just the changing of a flag. That's all that happened. And now they want to go, I owe everything to the Republic, which is now the Empire. So I got to go fight. That's my job. I find it very humanizing in that when you take a look at it. And I think that if anybody listens to it, within the first two minutes of it, he's explained exactly why he joined. And I wanted to get that out of the way right away, because I know that we're living in a real, um, real Divisive and interesting time. And when I say interesting, like the classic metaphoric, don't live in interesting times. Um, a very divisive era. And as soon as people hear, oh, it's from the the Imperials. Well, I don't know if I want to listen to that because it's you know justifying all the awful things that the Empire did. When it's not, if you listen to just the opening, he explains, like, if it wasn't for the Republic, my planet would have been scoured. So I owe everything I have to them. Why wouldn't I join? You know, and I th- I I really like telling a story like that. I want to humanize people. You know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in in the series, what has been your role? Did you do the writing? Did you do the acting? Were you involved in post production? Is it all your baby? What 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 exactly did you do with it?
2: I wrote it, uh, and then my producer Dila. Uh, helped me co-write it and she like ironed out a bunch of the stuff and then she'd send it back and she goes that doesn't work that does fix this and so that's what I do and so I write it and then I voice it I narrate it and then the voice actor roles are all uh, people I know that are big Star Wars fans um, and people that I know are not just broadcasters but just like big fans of Star Wars that I wanted to involve in it. Um, And then I do all of the post-production myself as well. So I produce it, write it, voice it. It's my baby. But I've got 47 other people that have contributed voices for like backgrounds because I want it to be as immersive as possible. So I need those like those little dabs of color with people giving battle cries in the background, people doing the voices like little one-off roles. And I really feel like by the end of the series, I was really rolling along and had a good system of introducing brief characters, like almost cameos, but not quite.
1: Mm hmm. This series is, you know, as you just mentioned, a really big production, 47 people involved in the cast, sound effects, musical cues. How do you go about setting up such a massive production, which is really, you know, when it comes right down to it, you're not doing this, you know, for profit or something. This is a a fan production. How do you go about setting up something like
2: that? Well, the radio background, like one of the jobs that I had when I started out in radio was producing commercials. And there's a lot of, foundations of production that I learned then um, that made this entire thing possible. Um, So it's those skills that I learned as a producer, but I also relearned all kinds of things as I went, as I was producing, like playing, because audio production really is something you've got to do it to know it, you know, and I was playing with things and I was learning as I went and I really feel that the production gets stronger as it goes. and. When I started out, I had this idea that I didn't want to have music playing. I wanted the environment to be the music, but that doesn't necessarily work from an audio standpoint because audio is so different than any other medium. Because you hear everything even though you don't know you hear it. Like if anybody sits down in a room, start listening rather than just being there. At any given time, you're listening to like a hundred things. But your brain processes it without you even realizing it. And I started to read books on Foley and read books on the psychology of audio. And so the first pass of the very first episode, there was no music. There was no music at all. And then I realized that by adding music in certain places, I could change the feel of everything without anybody even realizing and then I realized that adding music in all the time, I can change the tempo, I can change the pace, and then adding the sound effects in to coincide with the music. So you've got a big explosion, as you've got a big explosion that's going down, which isn't even just one sound effect. A good explosion is the impact, the blast, the air escaping, the rubble falling, the human reaction, the sounds of the environment, the echo coming off of all that you underneath that you can layer in a music change so that people don't even realize they're hearing it so it started out in my head very small but as i went it got very big because it's a fan production and the thing with There was just that big argument, which a bunch of yahoos arguing about fan fiction saying it's not real writing on the internet on the weekend. I mean, there's such a preconceived notion about a fan made project that I knew it needed to be good. Like I knew it needed to be a pro level sounding event from the, this needed to be something that could have a studio behind it. Otherwise no one would care and no one would take it seriously. And I find with audio, in particular, people are very judgmental. Unless it's a movie or a video, they're so judgmental. Like, if I put a fan film about Star Wars online, it, and I don't want this to sound like I'm being a jerk, because it's not my intention. What I'm getting at is that people are much more forgiving when they can see it. If I had really good, like, costuming and visual effects... I could have mediocre fight choreography and pretty much meh sound. But if I put it online, I'll get 100,000 people watch it. They won't all necessarily like it, but they'll all watch it. And they might not even comment or they might comment and then they'll add feedback and all that. And you're going to have people that are going to love it. But when it comes to written words and audio, there's no mercy. Like there's people will just roll their eyes at it. I'm not going to give this my time. It's a fan-made thing. So I knew that in order for it to be what I wanted it to be, it needed to be as good as I could possibly make it. So it's been just the amount of time that went into it is huge. And it's like a product of love. And I think that it's very unique in terms of the things that are out there right now.
1: Now I have a funny feeling I already know the answer to this question, but I would remiss if I I would be remiss if I didn't ask it. I noticed the language is decidedly more yeah. let's call it spicy than traditional Star Wars. Content. I
2: love that you put that when you wrote that down when you said spicy. I got a chuckle out of that. I like that. That's perfect. That's the perfect way of putting it.
1: So what what inspired you to go more what what's basically like an R rated direction with the language, which is pretty different from mainstream
2: Star Wars stuff? Absolutely, I got I. The first piece of hate mail I got was there's no swearing in Star Wars. He he said other things, which was interesting because he swore at me when he said there's no swearing in Star Wars. But (laughs) someone said there's no swearing in Star Wars. And I had a version of the script and I voiced a version of the script where there were no swear words. And I threw in all the classic Star Wars swear words. Um, But... I, like I said, my dad was military and I worked on a military base in a canteen and this was like a training camp. So this is when soldiers were coming in and they were training and they'd be there for a few months and then they would leave. And so I am in the canteen watching the way these guys interact and watching the way these guys talk. And, and that's, They swear, they really do. And it's, but it sounds weird to say when they swear, it doesn't feel vulgar, if that makes any sense. It's not a vulgar thing. They just do. And it becomes just the way they speak and the way they interact. And like, they're so mean to each other. Like, they're, but it's not mean. That's like how they're bonding. They are constantly dumping on each other, but joking around. And that's how they get along. And it's because like, Military training is designed to put you in a position where you feel overwhelmed all the time. And that sense of overwhelmed, being overwhelmed, makes you bond with the other people around you that are going through the same thing that are also overwhelmed. And that's how they bond. Um, And I felt that with the nerf herders and things like that, it just didn't. It it sounded like fake swear words, if that makes any sense. felt like their mouths were full when they said it. And so I just threw it in and I gave my producer, Dila, both versions. And she said a hundred percent that the swear version sounded more natural. And so I left it in and I think it sounds stronger that way. And if people get turned off, right? they get turned off. Like I don't like the idea that everything needs to be for everybody. Like when everybody dumped all over the, the last Jedi. I was like, why? <laughs> it's, it's star Wars. You don't have to like it. It's just, it's, it's fine. Let other people like what they like. So I put, I left the swearing in and, and if someone likes it, that's cool. And if they, that's what makes it so they don't like it, then th- that's okay too. I guess it's not, I don't, I don't want, need everybody to like it. You know what I mean? I think it's a really cool human story. And I think there's a lot of very human elements with a lot of development of a character as they learn that signing on the dotted line wasn't what they thought they were signing on the dotted line for. And that's just going to get more and more prevalent as the story goes.
1: Now, you've just released a season one finale. Um, Hmm. Any thought uh, about season two yet? What can
2: fans look forward to? Are you planning on continuing the story? A hundred percent I am. Uh, chapter seven is written. I just actually finished it on the weekend um, and I sent it off to the producer. So I have, it's a three arc story. So the first arc is done. Then there's going to be the second arc. Like each season is an arc. So, and then the next season and then the third season, that arc will conclude. But there, I've already planned out a fourth, a fourth arc of the story. Um, a continuation that's going to be told from a different perspective. Um, and I, I just, if I could do it as a full-time job, I would. But I I, I can't because I have a full-time job already. And I, I love it so much because I feel like as I've written it, I've started to like it more than I did when I started. Um, because I've gotten to know these characters and understand this world that they're in. And it, like when bad things happen to them, like I'm feeling it now, but they need to happen. And It's I I'm so excited for the second season to launch because the way the first season ends, it you realize that everything that they've done has kind of been orchestrated by somebody else without them even realizing it. And then in the second season, they're gonna realize it. And they're gonna realize the dire straits that they are in. And I wanted to do it that way because I want the listener to get over that these guys are the worst cuz they're fighting for the the bad guys and realize that they're not all bad guys like that was what i liked about rogue one saga i think is was the coolest addition to star wars in those movies yeah. um i think the coolest new addition to star wars as a as a franchise has been the inquisitors i think that's the best thing that's been introduced in the new era of Star Wars, are Inquisitors. But in the movies, I love Saw Gerrera so much because he's so uncompromising and he's so vicious and he's fighting on the good guy side. But are any of us going to say Saw is a good guy? (laughs) Because I don't think he is. And you realize that the Empire is so huge and so strong and so evil it is just impossible for the Rebel Alliance to have won or defeated the Empire without a lot of Saagarares. It's just that simple. You're not going to there's the idea that like to defeat a monster you've got to become a monster. Saagara is a monster of a human being. But you need a monster to beat a monster. And I think that we all forget that. We all have this idea that everybody in the Rebellion is a Luke Skywalker when that's just not the case at all. Um, and I, the, that episode of The Mandalorian, uh, The Believer in the second season with Bill Burr, when he's like, has the confrontation with his former commander, I thought that was just brilliant. Imagine how many people were in the Empire that felt just like that that realized they hated the Empire because of what it actually was. And we just saw them get eaten alive by Ewoks. <laughs> and we're okay with it. When if they had an opportunity to get away, they 100% would.
1: Yeah. Uh, so besides more Mutt-79, what what what's next for Fred Kennedy? More, more comics? More audio dramas? What
2: future projects are you cooking up right now? Well... Um there might be a bit of a delay with the second season of Mud 79. And that's because like I I I just signed a contract today for a comic and I can't really talk about it. <laughs> but but I can say that I'm really excited about it and that it's it's pretty rad and I'm gonna reach out to you specifically when I can talk about it because I will say that it involves Germany on a certain level. Oh, but oh, it involves a right. Germany before Germany was even called Germany. And I think you'll really like it. Oh, that
1: sounds fantastic. Now you really piqued my curiosity.
2: And it also affects me because of where I grew up. Um, I grew up in the territory of the Belgii, And that's all I'm going to say. Oh, well, now now I'm really I'm very curious what you're up to. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll reach out to you. I'll tell you once we're not recording. Okay. How about that? So before, before we wrap
1: things up, is there anything you'd like to mention or talk about that I did not get to specifically ask you about?
2: I would really like to see people give fan-made projects more of a chance. Um, there are so many great fan-made, Star Wars especially, I think has the most vibrant fan base. The most multicultural, uh, the most diverse fan group out of almost any property. Like Star Trek and Star Wars are very similar in that regard. Um, and I see so many absolutely incredible fan made projects out there. And uh, I know, I I know some people could interpret what I said as kind of like dogging on like fan made films, but that is it's the exact opposite of what i'm trying to do in fact i just watched this unbelievably well-made fan film called scorekeeper um which is about dr afra um and kind of takes place in the same time frame as mud 79 does and i it's so it's so brilliantly done that it you'd think it was canon it like you know how star wars has those like crates that have that specific crate shape you know they they have crates in this fan-made movie that are just like that. And it's fantastic. <laughs> to me, when I watched it, I was like, ooh, the crates. They got the crates. That's so great. So, yeah, like the, there's so many great fan-made projects. And I think that uh, we as fans need to do a bit of a better job of supporting other fan-made projects. Um, we see so many people shouting for space and shouting to get recognized and having a voice when – we really need to take the time to see those other people that are also shouting for a voice. Cause there's so many wild things out there. I there's a podcast and I feel like a jerk, but I can't remember its name right now. They do a fake star Wars intergalactic, um, newscast. And it's like a news, like done like an actual newscast, but it's set in star Wars and it's a podcast. And, I think it's fantastic. (laughs) I think it's brilliantly done. And I would encourage everybody to check it out. And if I wasn't recording on my phone right now, I would look it up for you to have it in hand right now. Thank you so much for your time, man. Thank
1: you, man. Well, there you have it, folks. Thanks again to Fred Kennedy. The audio drama is Mud79. You can find the link, of course, in our show notes. After we come back from this, our final break, it'll be time for nerd commendations. stick around
0: welcome back to our final segment nerd commendations yes we own the patent on that dave i i have been rapidly like consuming godzilla content like i am a radioactive dinosaur consuming you know tiny peasant humans what do you have for us
1: Well, Godzilla vs. Kong is obviously coming soon, and everybody's talking about this monster mashup. And this recent interest in Godzilla, and you're clearly infected as well at this point, has inspired me to revisit some of my favorite Toho Studios Godzilla movies. Now, this is not a secret to anybody who knows me, but I have watched every Godzilla movie, period, multiple times. And one of my favorites the one that I always put on when I'm feeling blue and I need something that's just pure, pure enjoyment. And one that I would like to recommend today is 2004's Godzilla Final Wars. It may not be the deepest movie with with the most emotionally resonant story, but good God, it's a lot of fun. The movie was released to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Big Lug, and it shows. It's really a love letter to Godzilla movies. The plot revolves around an alien race, who come to Earth in supposed peace only to reveal themselves as conquerors. Their strategy is to control the kaiju of the world and use them against humanity. Godzilla appears to be immune, though, and has to fight a gauntlet of some of the most memorable kaiju from previous films to save the Earth. This movie is more fun than it has any right to be. One of my favorite scenes sees Godzilla make short work of the American version of Godzilla. You know the one, directed by Roland Emmerich, uh, that was just uh, an abomination against all things Godzilla. And this fight lasts literally about 30 seconds. There's just no doubt immediately uh, which version of Godzilla is superior. And then there's, you know, Don Fry as Captain Douglas Gordon. And let me tell you, I have no idea whose brainchild this character was that he is one of the most over-the-top, compelling human characters in a Godzilla movie, period. You know, usually when you watch a Toho Studios Godzilla movie, you are really tuning in for the kaiju action and a little less about the human characters. But this guy, this guy's mesmerizing. I could watch him all day. He consistently gets the best lines and coolest moments in the movie, at least among human characters. But, you know, Godzilla still reigns supreme in this one, and he is absolutely incredible as he goes through multiple kaiju fights to take out these aliens. God, I love this movie. You know, you want to see Godzilla kick some kaiju butt before Godzilla vs. Kong comes out? This is your movie. It's absolutely awesome.
0: I, I tell you what, I think what it was, and, and and this is one of the most positive byproducts of this podcast, and and just opening myself up and keeping an open mind I always tried to like take myself too seriously as an intellectual. What's the deeper meaning? What is the symbolism? And sometimes you just need to divorce yourself of all of that and just let the testosterone and the endorphins flow. And that's what I appreciate so much about Godzilla flicks is like, it's just, dude, it's just flip flipping awesome. Like it's just crash and smash and it's wonderful, but not in a Michael Bay type of way. Like, <laughs> but um <laughs> And and the more that I appreciate this content and you add in all the other things that Japan and Japanese nerds have contributed to the world, like we salute you, our Japanese nerd brothers and sisters and friends. Like, thank you so much for giving us so many wonderful things between kaiju and ninjas and all of the wonderful, awesome things that, that you have given to the world of nerddom. We salute you.
1: Yeah, I can only echo that. I would have had probably a much duller childhood if I wouldn't have had the opportunity to sit down consistently all the time with my dad just to watch some old Godzilla movies. Uh, absolutely enjoyable. So Final Wars, uh, I highly recommend it. it. It's It's aged wonderfully. It's great, great, great action. Now, Chris, you're taking us back to the world of comic books. What have you got for us this week?
0: Well, I hinted at this nerd commendation a couple of weeks ago with our Valentine's Day episode, um, but I have finished at least the run to current, and I am totally putting it at the top of my nerd commendation list. And that is the Black Panther run by Tanahasi Coates. Um, this is still ongoing for a couple more issues. He's about to wrap it up. But um, overall, the biggest thing that I appreciate about this run is the authenticity. It's really. Uh, even as a derpy white guy, I, I just appreciate the fact that we have a black writer telling black stories about black characters. You know, even in my experience, when predominantly white male writers try their hand at writing characters of color, a lot of times it backfires miserably. And this was a truly refreshing experience. And I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed, um, the 2018 film Black Panther so much, you had, um, you know, an almost an exclusively black cast. You had, uh, Ryan Coogler, a black director telling this story. And, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful experience to just open yourself up to different voices. Um, even taking all of those factors out of consideration, It's still a masterpiece in storytelling, though. Um, The intricacy and detail in uh, Coates' world building is just mesmerizing, spellbinding. Um, Here are a couple of of just hit points of my favorite things about this entire run. Um, The different tribes and groups that make up Wakanda... Um, you just think of what we've seen so far in in the cinematic universe. We see just this one Wakanda and all these tribes come together and togetherness. But this is a much this is peeling back those layers um, in these different tribes and groups. They have their own ideal uh, ideals and beliefs and and ways that they think that the country should be run. Um, so it's a much, much deeper than a than a two hour film could be. Um, the complicated history of the country, you know, Wakanda is this idealized, you know, African nation of what would have happened without slavery and and colonization, but it still has its complications, um, and and that's fascinating to to see how it's different than other uh, other nations. The inherent uh, problems of of continuing a monarchy, even with T'Challa being a benevolent king um, or monarch in the 21st century, like times have changed and how does he need to update that in his governance? Um, and you know, the old adage of heavy is the head that wears the crown T'Challa has sacrificed so much for his country and, and the title of King, he sacrificed his marriage all in the name of Wakanda. He he sacrificed friendships. He's sacrificed so much for this country and yet he continues to do so. And, and you really get an in-depth look at the toll that that's taken on him personally. He felt that that was his duty. Um, but undoubtedly my favorite element of this, um, this run is the relationship between T'Challa and Storm, as I hinted at a couple of weeks ago. His ability, um, Coates' ability to work around any possible editorial mandates, like they can't be married, um, and still have the two of them romantically intertwined is just masterful. It's so creative. It's so smart. Um, you know, I compare this, obviously, with the other marriage that is not allowed between Peter and MJ, and a lot of Spider-Man writers just stayed far away from it. Um, barely had MJ in the stories, but coach is like, no, that's not going to happen. These, you don't just stop, you know, that doesn't just abruptly quit, you know? Um, So that's a really, really interesting, you know, take on a, on a long-term relationship that was ended before it's time. Um, In a lot of ways it features better stories for storm uh, than the X titles did for years up until the Hickman reset. She's had some time to shine thankfully since 2018 when hickman took over but um and dawn of x but uh, this is some really great moments for her as well um even aside from just her relationship to t'challa she has some some time to shine on her own um it really tackles complex topics like family legacy religion and spirituality and governance in fascinating and new ways um the current arc Um, which is a pretty extensive one, like basically this entire volume. So you have the 2016 volume um, that was about 22, 23 issues. And then you have the current one that started in 2018 around the release of the film um, called The Galactic Empire of Wakanda. And it's really a different story that's ever been told um i mean it's black panther in space like it's something that's never been attempted before so i had my reservations going into it um but i'm really really truly enjoying it um you know issue 23 just came out um yesterday i haven't read it yet and then it will conclude in 24 and 25 and then Coates is stepping away from the book um It's a storyline that is refreshing and new. It's really interesting way to also retcon and reset the world of Wakanda following um, the film's release. Um, And the art by Daniel Acuna is just absolutely breathtaking and and hypnotic. It has this almost like painted quality to it. Um, It's just, it's just gorgeous. Um, I am sad to see the run ending with uh, April's issue number 25, but I'm also glad that it's not dragging on too long. I feel very, very similar to how I did with Jason Aaron's Thor run. It didn't, uh, you know, oversay it's welcome and you get, it's like that show where you get too many episodes. It's like, okay, it just, just end already. Um, but I'm also, after reading this, definitely intrigued to check out uh Ta-Nehisi's run on Captain America. And just the fact that he's, writing about steve rogers and and the the interesting take that he would have on the character so i'm, I'm definitely checking that one out next but yeah ta Coates, black panther definitely good stuff uh, nation under our feet is the first arc and it is probably one of the strongest comic runs that i've read in a long time
1: yeah, I hear nothing but good about Coates run on Black Panther. And I've gotten around I haven't gotten around to it yet, regrettably, because I'm still playing catch up on many excellent Marvel comics that I've missed over the last few years as a DC fan. I will say that after the Black Panther movie, I have a renewed interest obviously in the character and I really want more, so Coates I think is going to be my entry point into the story of T'Challa and the nation of Wakanda. I think that is going to move now to the top of my list.
0: All right, folks, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd Byword podcast. We thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much uh, to Fearless Fred Kennedy for taking time to speak with Dave. Um, and be sure to stick around for our next episode next week on Monday, bright and early.
1: And as always, if you enjoy what you hear, please uh, find us on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a subscribe, drop us a rating or a review, and we would love to hear from you what you think about the show. You can find us, of course, on social media at uh the at nerd by word on Twitter and on um Instagram, and of course, we are also there individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave
0: and be sure that you do subscribe. Um, to the podcast on whichever podcast platform you so desire. Um, We will start giving away free comics. Uh, We have digital comics, physical comics. So be sure that you're subscribed and you will be entered to win free comics. So it doesn't get much better than free comics. Um, And as always, stay well and stay nerdy.
1: The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available.